Amen, amen. Hey, if, you are, uh, if you're new to the Church of 1122, what you just watched uh, was a few testimonies from our beach baptism we got to celebrate this past June. We had to walk out in the water with over 250 people who publicly declared that Jesus Christ is their Lord and Savior. And that's really what we're all about here at the Church of 1122. We're about life change, and we really believe that life change is a response to the gospel. It's a response to who Jesus is and a response to uh, what God's Word says to us. And so we're going to dig in. We're starting a brand new series today called Greater Than. And uh, what we're going to do, we're going to kind of catch up with the nation of Israel, uh, kind of like part two of the Exodus. So we, we actually taught, uh, we've taught a series on Exodus, and I would encourage you, if you are new to the church, to go back and listen to that. It's not required. Like, you can come back. You don't have to listen to anything ever again. But it might help you to just kind of capture a picture of what's going on here. But we're going to study the book of Leviticus and the book of Numbers, which is kind of like part two of the Exodus. And so what we know is that the nation of Israel has, has left slavery, they've left captivity, Moses let my people go, is leading them to the promised land of Canaan. And when we catch up with them in Leviticus and Numbers, it's just this kind of part two. And so what we're going to do is we're going to study Leviticus, we're going to study the book of Numbers, and what we've noticed as we've been preparing and getting ready for uh, these two books is that there's just this overarching theme of the majesty and sovereignty of God being bigger than or greater than any of our emotions, any of our circumstances. And so for over the next six weeks, we're going to study this kind of theme of Scripture that God is greater than our feelings. And in fact, if you've been around, you've heard Pastor Joby say at least once, if not every five minutes, I don't care about your feelings. And it's really true that Joby doesn't care about your feelings. But here's why, because Pastor Joby and our church cares more about you than we do about your feelings. And so what we want to do is expose our feelings and, and look at our feelings and, and ask the question, where did our feelings lie to us? Like, where do our feelings mislead us? And what we're going to see over this next six weeks is that our, our feelings, our emotions, have the tendency to lie to us, and yet God's sovereignty, His majesty, and His patience, He is Lord over our feelings. And so we're going to dig into things like guilt and things like rebellion and discontentment and fear and anger, and we're going to dig into these emotions that are very, very common and very, very real to us and just ask the question, so how is God greater than these? And so we're going to begin today in the book of Leviticus. I know that's what everybody woke up this morning thinking. If I could just get a good dose of Leviticus today, it would make my Sunday complete, right, everybody? That's how I woke up. And uh, we're going to look through the book of Leviticus and just uh, Pastor Joey asked me, hey, Ryan Stone, we don't, I don't have a first name around here anymore because there's two Ryans. I lost my first name. Hey, Stone, uh, let me just ask you, do you think you could cover the book of Leviticus? I said, great, no problem. How long do I have? He said, one week. And I said, bro, that's 27 chapters. It took you a year and a half to do Acts, which is 28. So we got a lot of work to do today. So we're going to do the entire book of Leviticus in the next five to six hours. So buckle up. Um, here's what you got to know as we look through Leviticus, Exodus ends with this statement, Exodus 19, as they're kind of rolling out, um, Exodus says that Israel is a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And so the purpose of the book of Leviticus really picks up on that statement. The first purpose or the first reason why the book of Leviticus was written is an establishment and instruction manual for the priesthood. If Israel was going to be a nation of priests, then they need, the priests needed, one, be established, and two, they needed to know what they were supposed to do. In fact, the, the Latin for Leviticus literally means matters of the Levites. The Levites were the family in Israel who were the priestly family. Aaron, uh, Moses' brother Aaron, Aaron and his family were the Levites. They were the priests. The second reason that the book of Leviticus was written, it's not just an instruction manual for priests, but it's really instructions on how to be a holy nation. You, you got to think about this. E Israel comes out of Egypt and, and there's all kind of things going on. First of all, there's all these raw emotions. Like they were slaves and now they're free. They were captives building someone else's kingdom. And now they are a free nation. Like there's all these raw emotions. They had heard that God told their father Abraham, who had many sons, that he, he, they told Abraham that the nation would have their own, their own land someday. And they went from being slaves in another nation to free 
a free nation on their way to a new land. And so there's all these raw emotions. And so they, they needed, the nation of Israel needed some, some civil law, some moral law. And they needed some kind of religious instructions. How are we supposed to be a holy nation? And also, if you remember from our study in the book of Exodus, that God had decided to live amongst the Israelites. For the first time in human history, since Adam and Eve, God builds the tabernacle, this tent that he is going to literally dwell in. So not only is Israel now a new nation, but they got new neighbors. Like, just think about it. If you moved into your neighborhood and like you get a knock on the door and you're like, hey, awesome, welcome to the neighborhood. My name's Jesus. Here's, here's some bread. I made it for you, right? And you're like, oh my goodness, my neighbor's Jesus. All of a sudden, you would start rethinking everything, right? All right I would stop, you know, sunbathing in the backyard in my Speedo. It would just, things would change. If, oh, that mental picture you can't get rid of, right? Things would just change if Jesus was your neighbor. And so God literally, as a gift, gives the book of Leviticus to Israel to instruct the priesthood and to tell this brand new nation, how, how do you live with God as your neighbor? How do you live in a, in, a, in a new nation where God is your king and everything? And there's four major sections, and, I, and I'm just going to do a little bit of this overview before we dig in um, because, because I think it's very, very helpful. But there's four major sections in the book of Leviticus. The first major section is this. It's instructions on how to worship God. Israel, God was their God, and God, they were Israel, Israel was God's people, but they didn't, have, they didn't really know what to do. They didn't know how to worship. The only examples they had was, it was Egypt, and Egypt worshiped the Pharaoh, and that wasn't going to work. And so chapters 1 through 7 is literally just this instruction. Here's how you worship God. The, the second section is the initiation and the establishment of the priesthood, that Aaron would be the high priest and that his sons and his family would be the priesthood. The third section is a whole section that deals with the uncleanness of man. A whole section about how man is unclean and how man, since they are unclean, how they would become pure to come into God's presence. And then the fourth part is ten chapters on instructions of how to be holy. Let me just go one layer deeper here. The, the worship, the first section, there was five offerings. God said there's a burnt offering, there is a grain offering, a peace offering, a sin offering, and a guilt offering. And for every one of you who just got nervous that there's a test to get out of here, there's not. That's just free information, right? You're thinking, is I going to write this down and take a test on this later? Uh, you can only leave if you get 100 on the test, right? I'm just kidding. Here, here's what we do want to know. I want you to hear those five offerings, but here's why. Each one of those offerings from chapter 1 to chapter 7, there is very, very detailed instruction on how the Israelites were supposed to worship. And there's three common threads in each one of the offerings. The first one is this, is that all of the sacrificial system, all of the offerings of Leviticus are very, very tactile. They're very, very hands-on. It's if God is declaring, I am real, and when you worship me, you, the way you worship me will remind you of how real God is. I mean, there's instructions on like when you're sacrificing a bull, that you should take the, the right thigh and wave it before the Lord saying, thank you for this sacrifice. And there's all these tactile instructions about burning incense and that it would, the smoke would rise to heaven and it would be as if the prayers were going to heaven. There's all these really tactile instructions to remind Israel that worshiping your God, God is real. The second thing that is a common thread that's important for us is this. Worship was very, very precise. Like there was very, very precise. God was declaring to Israel that he was a God of precision, that he's never made a mistake, that he's never kind of haphazardly done, some, done anything, that God is a God who even when he created, created with precision. And the, the chapters 1 through 7 of Leviticus tell us, like, when you're sacrificing a bull, lay the bull's head to the east so that as you cut the bull and the bull's blood runs, it runs down into the basin, right? Which is good because you don't want the blood running the wrong way. It just gets messy, right? And so this is where you do it. And they even said, and if you're going to bring a grain offering before God, you bring a grain offering. And it was like an exact recipe. You want two-tenths of an ephah, a fine flour. You want to make the bread unleavened. You want to bring it and put it in two piles of six laying frankincense over each pile before the Lord. Very, very precise in how to worship God. And the third thing that we see is it always costs something. Like it is a reminder to Israel, your sin cost something. And so whether it be the sacrifice of a bull or the giving of grain or uh, for, there was even economic statuses. You, if you were rich, you gave a bull. If you were poor, you gave two turtle doves. And there was all these different um, costly measures that as the nation of Israel worshiped, it was a constant reminder that God is real and he is real as, as real can be. 
He is precise and he has chosen you. And that sin cost us something. And to worship God cost us something. As we keep going through the book of Leviticus, remember there's four sections. The third section, this is interesting to me, 125 times in the book of Leviticus, it declares that man, that you and I, are unclean before a perfect and holy God. Like 125 times in 27 chapters. In fact, it even gives us some different rules. Like there's all kind of dietary laws in Leviticus, right? That you can eat like hoofed animals that chew cud, but you can't eat. There's all these different rules, like you couldn't eat pork. Like, I would be a really bad Jew because you know what, like, I want to eat for breakfast? Barbecue. You know what I have for lunch? Barbecue. You know what I need for dinner? Barbecue. You know what I need for dessert? Barbecue flavored ice cream, right? All I want is barbecue. I love barbecue, right? There's no wrong way to eat a pig. I would not make a good Jew. Neither, neither would my wife, right? Because the, the, the dietary laws say that, you know, you can, eat, you can eat all the fish with scales, but you can't eat shrimp, right? You try to take a piece of fried shrimp from my wife, you will come back with a nub. It is not safe. And, and for me, I, I love her so much, I'm willing to eat fried shrimp and barbecue every meal, right? That's just, that's how you get this figure right here, all right? And so there are all these different dietary laws. There's all these different childbirth laws. Like if you give birth to a boy, you have, you're unclean for 33 days. If you give birth to a girl, you're unclean for 66 days, which really wasn't one of punishment. God just knew that boys needed a lot more attention from mom, so she got out of jail quicker to take care of the boys. There's all these different things about the difference between male pattern baldness and leprosy, which is really helpful for this group because I can see your head shining back at me. All right, we need to just run you through that one. There's all these different laws about man is unclean and how do we make man pure. And then the fourth, chat, the fourth section was all about personal holiness. It was all about how the nation of Israel was supposed to be holy before a holy and perfect God. And, and there was rules, like you, you, the, the ones we expect, like don't steal, don't deal falsely, don't eat blood. You know, the ones that we're just thinking, that's the top five list, right? And, and, and we joke about the blood, but that was very, very common in some of the cultures around to eat the blood of the animals to kind of declare that I've got power over the animals. And God's going, no, 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 you're set apart. You don't need to eat the blood. God is the power for Israel. There's more rules about punishment for child sacrifice and sexual immorality, an eye for an eye. There's the beginning of a welfare system for this nation that, that God told them when you, when you begin to reap your fields, leave the edges for the people who can't afford food and leave the edges for them that, that neighbors would take care of neighbors. All right, there's this one. Don't put a stumbling block before the blind. Now, the only reason they got to put that one in there is because somebody had already broken that one. That was one of those rules. Where like, you remember when Pete put the stumbling block in front of the blind guy? Don't do that, all right? It goes on and on. Like, if there's agricultural rules, but if you're planting, plant a tree and let it grow for three years. Let it grow strong. And on the fourth year, sacrifice the fruit before the Lord. And on the fifth year, eat it. Chapter 18 is full of memory verses about sexual immorality that I learned in high school. And they're just weird. Like, they're like, which animals you can't have sex with? That's all of them. That's in chapter 18, all right? Please don't stop listening. You can read that later, okay? Um, and then there's all these different rules about feast and when, when to feast and come before the Lord and celebrate him. And, and there's, there's even rules in there about don't wear two types of, of, of uh, fabric, right? So for all of us who showed up today with jeans and a cotton t-shirt, according to Leviticus, you're unclean and you should not be in, in the temple. There's all these different rules about don't shave your beard. So every guy who shaved, like I keep trying that one with my wife. Like the Lord says I can't shave my beard. Like and just go, you know, duck dynasty. She's like, this is not Old Testament. Go to your room and shave. All right, yes, ma'am. And getting a tattoo is in Leviticus. You're not supposed to get a tattoo, right? Here's the problem. Our whole staff is disqualified if Levitical law is still in place. In fact, I think in orientation, when you get on staff, they're like the day one, they're orientated. Here's where the bathrooms are. Here's where the copiers are. Now go ahead and get your arm out. Here's the needle. You got to get a tattoo. There's all these laws and all these rules about what you can and can't do about what it means to live in, in, in the presence of a perfect and holy God. And I think, I think chapter 26 really captures the weight of Leviticus the best. Let me just read a couple of verses for us. Leviticus chapter 26, verse 3 says this, If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, I will give you your rains in their seasons, and by the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last until the time of the grape harvest, and the grape harvest shall last until the time for sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lay down, and, you, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. Here's the weight of Leviticus. God says, when, God's telling Israel, when you're obedient, I will bless you, I will provide provision for you, 
I will cover you. I will care for you. Now, and, and this is not the prosperity gospel. This is not we behave a certain way to get all the cash and prizes from God. This is just, this is just the heavenly father being the heavenly father. He's saying, look, when you do what I tell you to do, I'll take responsibility. Like when we're obedient to God for what God's told us to do, God takes the responsibility. When God says, this is my words and I'll tell you to be obedient. And when we put God to the test, he's always trustworthy. Like when we obey him and listen to him every single time he comes through. God has never broken a promise and he never will break a promise. This is just a heavenly father going, children, I love you. And when you walk according to my rules, you walk according to my statutes, you are setting yourself up for blessing and provision. Now, the opposite's true, too. If obedience leads to blessing, if obedience leads to provision, then disobedience leads to discipline. Disobedience leads to discipline. Let me read, let me read further, verse 14. But if you will not listen to me, and you will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, and if your soul abhors my rules. Have you ever thought about, like, those, those words are heavy. Like, the last time you were disobedient to God... Like God is putting it in the category of your soul abhors my rules. Like the weight of this. So that you will not do my commandments, but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic and with wasting disease and fever that consume your eyes and make your heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. And I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies, that those who hate you shall rule over you and you shall flee when none pursues you. You see the way to that? Here, here's the way to Leviticus. O obedience leads to blessing and provision. Disobedience leads to discipline. But yesterday, uh, we, we were at the mall. We just got our kids back. My wife and I have been in Uganda on a mission trip and my in-laws brought, brought our kids back and we're walking around. Everything's great. My wife just had a birthday. We're kind of spending her birthday money and she's buying this, this, this top, this shirt, and I've got the kids and everything's great. We're just hanging out and talking about, you know, uh, Cantina Laredo. My daughter goes, that's where they have all the chips. Yeah, they do. And guacamole, right? We're just hanging out and all of a sudden my four-year-old just feels the need to strike my two-year-old. Like, just wham, like MMA quick, like what? You know, and if it was a boy, I'd be like, that's awesome. Look how quick she is. We're going to get, get him in. To, in, in my, I don't really like my daughter being a quick striker. And she just strikes, Emery just strikes Blakely, right? And so what do I do? I discipline her because I love her. I say, you, you know that is not in line with what I've asked you to do. Sit in your seat. There's no cookie for you, which really hurt me too because I really wanted the cookie. But we, we punished and disciplined my daughter. Why? Because when you walk in obedience, there's provision. When you walk in disobedience, there's discipline. It's just the whole weight of Leviticus is this, is be holy as he is holy. And God will provide and cover. But when we choose to make ourselves God, God will let us have the desires of our heart. Here's the theme, the main point. Here's what the, the main, like the bottom line, the big idea of the book of Leviticus is. It's this, be holy because God is holy. Be perfect because God is perfect. Be set apart because God is set apart. Be pure and without sin because God is without sin. And if you're the nation of Israel and you're hearing this, this, this book being read over you, there is just this weight of if God is holy and perfect and just, and I'm supposed to be like that, oh my goodness. In fact, there's several times throughout the scripture, over 50 times throughout Leviticus, the I am holy, I am the Lord your God is declared. Here's a couple of them. Leviticus 19.2, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Chapter 20 says it this way, consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy for I am the Lord your God. And to be holy really just simply means this. It means to be set apart, to be pure, to be blameless, to be, to be perfect. I mean, that's simply what it means. And be holy, chapter 20 says it this way, you shall be holy for me, for I am the Lord am holy and have separated you, separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. And here's, here's the truth, as, as, even as I read this, I, I just, just feel this weight over me that to be asked to be perfect is an overwhelming demand. 
In fact, some of us grew up in church, but that was the only thing you ever heard was be good, try harder, be perfect. God's perfect. He's not happy with you. And there's this overwhelming weight, this guilt of I'm going to try harder. I'm going to try harder. I'm going to try harder. And, and it gets worse. In chapter 19, it says this, you shall observe all my statutes and all my rules and do them. Why? Because I am the Lord. Like the ultimate daddy card here of like, hey, go clean your room. Why? Because I'm your dad and I said so. And I can, take, I can take your life, right? And what God's saying is be holy, be perfect. Why? Because I'm God and I'm holy and I'm perfect. That is what, that's what God is declaring to Israel. He says, I want you to obey everything. It goes on, chapter 20. You shall therefore keep all my statutes and all my rules and do them that the land where I am bringing you may not vomit you out. This is what God's doing. He's leaning in and going, hey, here's the deal. Um, Israel, you're my people. I'm your God. I'm taking you to the promised land. Here's what I'm asking you to do. Because God is holy, Israel, you should be holy. Because God is perfect, Israel, you should be perfect. Because God is set apart, Israel, you should be set apart. And if not, the promised land, which, I, which God declared holy, it will spit you out, Israel. Like, it will spit you out. You want to talk about weighty? It's, okay. it's one thing if I say, hey, be good, because I'm pretty good. But when the perfect and holy God says be perfect and holy because he is perfect and holy, it instantly creates in us this weight that's unbearable. In fact, what's happening throughout Leviticus is this command for all of us, and, and I think it still holds true today because if you look in the New Testament, Jesus, he echoes Leviticus. He quotes Leviticus. Jesus says be perfect because he is perfect. And there's this command to be perfect or holy. And in reality, it's a command that all of us still have to wrestle with today. Every single one of us, when we read the scripture in Leviticus and again throughout the New Testament where it says, be holy because I am holy, every single one of us, it becomes a command that we will do one or two things with. One thing that we do often is we try to ignore it. We try to ignore the command to be holy. We hear be holy, be perfect. And all of a sudden we go, oh, that's too heavy, that's too weighty. I don't think I can be perfect, holy, or set apart. Here's an idea. I'll just pretend like it doesn't exist, and I'll just begin to live for myself. We begin to ignore the command to be holy or to be set apart, and we begin to pursue our own pleasure, our own comfort, our own greed, our own desires, our own addictions, and we just ignore the fact that God calls all people to be set apart from sin and set apart from culture, and we just ignore it, and we go, I'll just kind of feed my own pleasures. I'll kind of do my own things. I'll please myself sexually as I see fit. I'll please myself with substances as it makes me feel Good. I'll please myself with stuff as long as it makes me feel good. The other thing that the other temptation, the other angle that we take is this is that we strive. If we don't ignore it, the other option is to just strive in our own strength to be holy or to be good or to be perfect. And we begin to talk about how good our language is. We stop cussing and we start saying darn. Well, darn it. But the only thing you've done now is just look like a goober. Like it's all you've done. We've had all these behaviors that we're just trying to get one step better. We start punching our, our card on our attendance at church and we begin to talk about how many times we've been to church or we begin to talk about how many things we've done or how many mission trips or disciple groups. And we just get to a point where there's a danger in which we begin to become so active in church, what we're really doing is striving to be perfect or holy. We're trying to be good on our own account. We're trying to be good on our own accord. Here's the problem. Whether we try to ignore the command to be perfect or whether we try to strive for it in our own strength, it can only lead us to one place, and that's this, guilt. You know why? When you ignore the command to be perfect, it does not negate the command to be perfect. Uh, right? When we go, hey, I'm just going to do my own thing, the problem is this, is that the command to be perfect and to be holy still fully exists. It doesn't go away. If you ignore this, if you ignore the speed limit, the speed limit doesn't go away. Eventually, you just get caught by the fact that you've broken it. And, and that's true for us in our sin. Eventually, we get to the point where we have everything we want. We have all the pleasures in the world. We do as we please. We've, we've done everything the world has to offer, everything we could ever find. And at the end of the day, we reach a point where we are just empty. 
We just reach a point where we, know, we, we thought, I'll just get everything the world's got. I'll get all the cash and prizes. I'll get all the relationships. I'll get everything that my work has to offer. And we end up at the spot where we have ignored being holy and set apart. And what we find ourselves in is just this emptiness and this guilt. Or we strive to be good. And what we realize is, is that no matter how good we are, we're never quite good enough. No matter how much we get into, how many behaviors we get into check or into line, no matter how good our attendance is at church, we still find ourselves angry and frustrated and sinning. And we, no matter how good we try to be, we realize, oh, I can't do this. And it's just pit in our stomach that says, no matter how hard I try, I can't be good enough. And here's what I love about Leviticus. Right in the middle of Leviticus, in Leviticus chapter 16, it's as if God knows, God says, I know. I know. See, what happens in Leviticus, remember the first section is all about how to worship God perfectly. The first section is all about how humans are, are unclean. The first 15 chapters are about how you and I are, can never be good enough and we keep striving and striving, but every time we sin, our sin costs us something. In fact, Romans says later in the Bible that our sin, that the wages of sin is death. And over and over again, we just get reminded of how no matter how hard we try, we, we still just come up short. And then from chapter 17 on, it's just all these rules about how you should just, you have to be good. You have to wear uh, clothes with one cloth and one with just cotton or just, just denim, right? The Canadian tuxedo. You're just trying to rock out just this obedience to holiness and it just wears you out. And so if you think about the nation of Israel, they're hearing this read to them and they're going, slavery might've been easier. It might have been easier to be a slave in Egypt than try to do all these rules. And right in the middle of all the weight of holiness, right in the middle is chapter 16. It's the intermission between the, the strict instructions of how to properly worship God and the seemingly impossible demands to live a holy life. Right in the middle of that weight. In Leviticus 16 is where the Lord leans in and goes, Here, Israel, be perfect. Israel, I know you can't. In fact, God says, I know you can't be perfect. That's what the whole book of Leviticus is about, is me telling you to be holy and be perfect, and then telling you that anytime you're imperfect, it's going to cost you sacrifice, that you're going to have, it's going to cost, that sin always costs. And God leans in and goes, look, I know your sin's going to cost you. I know you're going to sin. I'm going to call you to be holy and perfect. And here's the deal. Right in the middle of all that weight, God leans in and goes, and if you'll try, I will atone for your gaps. That God leans in and says, I will atone. Atonement simply means this. It means to pay a debt. Throughout the book of Leviticus, we see that sin requires a debt. And that debt is blood. It's, it's death. And to atone for sin, all those animals, all those offerings, all those sacrifices were to atone for sin. And right in the middle of the weight of all this holiness, God leans in in chapter 16 and declares what's called the day of atonement. That God actually sets in the, is the, in the calendar of this new nation, one day, the Holy of Holies, the Sabbath of Sabbaths, one day every year where God is going to atone for or pay for all the sins of all of Israel. It's as if God leans down and says, be perfect. And I know you can't. So I'm going to set it up a way that I can cover your imperfection. I, I love this picture. In fact, Leviticus 16, you just want, I want you to begin to think about this, this incredible time of worship that every day, every year, one day a year, there was this day of atonement, this day of high and holy worship where they'd come to the tabernacle. And we're gonna, I'm going to put a picture of the tabernacle on the screen for you so you can kind of begin to think about this. Um, Pastor Joby did an amazing sermon on it back during Exodus. I'd encourage you to go and listen to it. But just for a second, I just want you to see, this was the tabernacle. This was set up in the, in the tent, in the camp of Israel, right in the middle of it. And there was this courtyard area. And, and as you walk into the courtyard area, that first thing you see is um, it's an altar and they would, where they would burn sacrifices. The second thing is like a wash pan where you can wash up. And then what you see is that beautiful tent is the actual tabernacle. As you're looking at it, there's two rooms. The first room is called the holy place. And the second room, which is divided by a curtain, is called the holy of holies. And in the holy place was showbread and the candles, the incense, that would, the smoke that would go to the Lord. And then in the holy of holies is where the Ark of the Covenant, where the very presence of God dwell. And so I just want you to think this is the picture of the tabernacle. And on the day of atonement, what ha what's going to happen is God is going to invite Aaron, the high priest, into that back room, into the holy of holies. 
to meet with God and to let God atone for or pay for the sins of Israel. Leviticus 16 actually starts by saying, Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come into the holy place, the holy of holies, inside the veil, before the mercy seat that is on the ark, that he may die. So this starts out with Moses going, hey, Aaron, you don't just get to walk into the holy of holies. That's where God's presence is. You only go in there when God invites you in. And on the day of atonement every year, God would invite the high priest in to pay for or atone for the sins of the nation. Now, it's a very, very intricate system, and I want to walk us through it. The Day of Atonement would start in the morning with the high priest. He would come into that courtyard area where that, where that laver, where that wash bowl was, and he would wash himself. He would ceremonially wash himself. And then he would go into the tabernacle, and he would take off his, his royal priestly garbs, which were very, very nice and very, very um, elaborate. He would take those off, and he would put on a very simple and humble outfit for the Day of Atonement. After he got dressed, he'd come back out into the courtyard, he would take a bull, and he would sacrifice the bull as a sin offering for him and for his family, which I just think is a beautiful reminder to us of two things. One, the high priest, before he could even go before God to sacrifice and deal with the sins of the nation, the high priest had to go deal with his own sins because he is, was just like everyone in Israel. He, he, he was a sinner. And I love this beautiful picture because it reminds me as a pastor, and the pastors here, we would say the same thing. We're, we're, we got the same common issue you do. We're sinners, and we need a Savior. And the high priest would lead the way by sacrificing the bull to cover the sins of his family. After he sacrificed the bull, he would take blood, incense, and burning coals into that back room, into the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the mercy seat was, where God's throne, this is where they believe that God's presence existed. And he would go into that room, and the smoke would actually serve as a shield to shield him from the full glory of God. And he would take the blood of the bull, and seven times he would sprinkle it on what's called the mercy seat. And the mercy seat was really literally the lid of the Ark of the Covenant, the lid over the, over the Ten Commandments. It was the lid. It had these cherubims with their wings touching. And he would take and he would cover the mercy seat with blood, symbolizing that I've sacrificed, that blood has been spilt to pay the debt of my sins. Then after that, the high priest would come back out into the courtyard and all of Israel would have shown up and they would have brought two goats and they would cast lots. One goat would get the lot to be sacrificed as a sin offering. The other goat would be, uh, would be he'd get the lot to be the scapegoat, which we'll talk about in a second. So the high priest would come out, cast lots. He would take the goat that was going to be sacrificed for Israel's sin. He would sacrifice it as a sin offering. He'd kill it and, and bleed it and lay it up on the altar. And he would sacrifice it as a sin offering. And then what he would do is he'd take that blood back into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the blood once again on the Holy of Holies to symbolically declare that the sins of Israel had been sacrificed for and that God was covering them, atoning for them, or forgiving them. Then he'd come back out. Pretty exhaustive day, right? He'd come back out and he would, he would cleanse the altar that's out in the courtyard. He'd sprinkle more blood on it to say the, the spilling of blood covers sin. It cleanses. And then he'd come out and he would walk up to the people of Israel and they would bring the scapegoat to him. And he'd lay his hands, literally lay his hands on the head of the scapegoat. And this is beautiful. All of Israel would begin to confess their sins and declare their sins. And go, God, forgive us. This past year, I did. This past year, they would just be confessing their year's worth of sin. And the high priest would then can, would take all the sins of Israel and literally he would transfer them. He would lay them on the head of the scapegoat. All the sins of Israel were placed on the scapegoat, and then a goat keeper would take the goat as far as they could see and release him so that Israel could tactile, tactile could symbolically see that their sins had been removed from them to the point they could not see them anymore. The goat cleanser would then come back in. He would get, come in and cleanse himself. The high priest would then get redressed in his normal attire, and he would, he would sacrifice two more rams, no longer as a sin offering, but now as a burnt offering, as a, an aroma to the Lord to say, thank you for forgiving us. The fat of the sin offerings was then put on the altar and completely consumed. They'd take the bull and the goat sin offerings. They'd take what was left of the, of the carcasses, and they would carry them outside of town and completely burn them and consume them. And then the person who was in charge of that would come back in and he would cleanse himself. And 
And all of Israel, their sins were forgiven. All of Israel, their sins were atoned for. They were paid for. All of Israel, the sins were laid on the scapegoat and carried away. And for 1,500 years, this was, this was the ceremony. This was the, the high holy days that every year, for every, one day a year for 1,500 years, Israel would gather and they'd lay their sins on one goat to be sacrificed and pay the debt of sins. The other goat, they'd lay sins and the goat would go off into the distance and their sins would be removed. And for a moment, they'd all feel the freedom of forgiveness. They would feel grace from God. They would go, I'm without sin. And then the next day, they would wake up and they would, Somebody would tick them off and they'd get angry and they would, oh, here we go again. The next day they'd get up and they'd begin to think impure thoughts and they'd go, oh, here we go again. And for 1,500 years, every time they sinned, they'd have to bring a sacrifice before the Lord and lay it on the altar. And for that moment, they would feel the freedom of forgiveness. And then as soon as they sinned again, they would, feel that they would be overwhelmed in their guilt. For 1,500 years, bull after bull, goat after goat, turtle dove after turtle dove, Lamb after lamb. Their sins would be perfectly atoned for for a moment. And then they'd just sin again and it would be guilty and overwhelmed again by the whole book of Leviticus. And over and over again, they kept talking about the lamb, that there was a lamb, there was a sacrifice, there was a Messiah coming. And over and over again, they kept sacrificing lamb after lamb. And then one day, John the Baptist is out in the Jordan. He's out baptizing these men and women who are preparing their hearts for the Messiah. And Jesus comes and walks over. He's walking down to get baptized. As you can see him in the distance. And here's what John declares. He points at Jesus, knowing there's been 1,500 years of sacrifice. He points at Jesus and says this, Behold, the Lamb of God. God who comes to take away the sins of the world. What John was declaring is all of the sacrifice has been reminding us, it's been preparing us, it's been getting us ready for the one who would come who would eternally atone for all of our sin. And he points at Jesus and Jesus comes in the water and he gets baptized. Then he comes out of the water and the father says, this is my son who I'm well pleased. And Jesus begins his earthly ministry and he lives a perfect life. Jesus Jesus lives such a perfect life, unblemished. He is holy. He is pure. He is set apart. He never once made any mistake. And then, towards the end of his earthly ministry, he gathered his disciples for the Passover meal, a meal that's actually listed in Leviticus. It's one of the feasts that Jewish people would have before the Lord. And at that feast, Jesus took the bread and he said, this is my body. I'm, my body's going to be broken for you. And he passed the bread around. He takes the cup and he says, this cup is a reminder that my blood is going to be spilt for you. He was declaring to the disciples, the entire sacrificial system is about to be fulfilled. Then a few days later, Jesus is hanging on a cross and he dies. He dies for us. He, he sacrifices his life, his perfect, unblemished self. His blood is spilt for us. And here's the beauty of what Jesus does. He fulfills, ultimately fulfills the Day of Atonement. What Jesus does shortly after the Passover is he eternally, ultimately fulfills the Day of Atonement for all of Israel and for all of us to come. Remember all those steps that the high priest went through? Well, in just the beauty of who Jesus is, he fulfilled them all. Remember the, the beginning of the Day of Atonement, the high priest would wash and then he would put on humble clothes. Well, Jesus does the same thing. In fact, Philippians chapter 2 says this, that, that Jesus knew that he was equal with God, and yet he chose to empty himself and to move from divinity to humanity to dwell amongst us. That he put on humble humanity so that he could serve us. Remember, the high priest offers the bull as a sin offering because the high priest had to cover his sins. Well, the beautiful thing about Jesus is Jesus is the sin offering. That Jesus did not have to, have to sacrifice a goat to cover his sins. Jesus was blameless. He was unblemished. He was perfect. He is holy and set apart. And so he didn't have to offer anything. He is the offering. And remember, the high priest enters into the Holy of Holies to cover the mercy seat. And he enters into what was literally the presence of God to ask for forgiveness for Israel. Well, Jesus is the presence of God who came and dwelt amongst us to declare us to be forgiven. The high priest sprinkles the blood on the mercy seat to, to cover sins. Well, Jesus' blood eternally covers all of our sins. The high priest, remember, he would go back out into the courtyard and he would cast lots and he'd choose one goat to be sacrificed. He'd choose another goat to become the scapegoat. Well, Jesus comes to earth and goes, I'll take both lots. I will be the sacrifice to pay the price for your sin. The price of our sin is death. Jesus says, I'll pay it. And I will take your sins and remove them. 
The high priest sacrifices one goat as a sin offering. Jesus is the sacrifice of sin. The high priest goes into the holy holies and sprinkles blood to say, the people have been forgiven by the, by the blood of a goat. Well, Jesus' death, you know what happens as soon as Jesus dies? It says in Matthew 27 that that curtain that hung before the holy of holies that separated man from the presence of God, it says it was ripped from the top down. Jesus' death declaring that we now have access to the Father through the blood of Jesus. The high priest had to go back out and he had to sacrifice, he had to take all the blood and cleanse the altar where Jesus' blood forever consecrates us before the Lord. And the high priest went out and laid, laid the sin on the scapegoat and told the scapegoat to go away. Well, Psalms 103 says this about Jesus as far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That when Jesus went to the grave, you know what he took with him? He took our sins. He said, Give them to me. He, he's perfect and holy. And our outstretched arms began to, we, the, the sin of the world lay upon his shoulders as a burden. He took them to the grave. Now, on the, the day of atonement in Leviticus, the, the goat keeper would cleanse himself after carrying sin away. And the same thing happens when Jesus comes out of the grave. He is free of sin. He has dealt with our sin. Remember, the high priest would go and redress in his royal priestly garbs. Well, Jesus comes out of the tomb redressed in all of his glory. The fat of the sin offering was taken, burnt, and completely consumed. When Jesus' death eternally consumes our sins. Eternally consumes them. The bull and the goat were carried outside the city to be burnt. And I cannot, I cannot shake the imagery and the parallelism that Jesus himself was, was carried outside of the city, hung on the cross outside of the city, so that he could perfectly, wholly consume our sin. And that when that person who carried the goat out and carried the bull out to consume it came back, he had to cleanse himself. When Jesus comes out of the grave, when he comes out victorious, not only does Jesus come out completely, sense, uh, completely cleansed and completely perfect and completely whole, he comes out and invites us to join him. You see, what happens on the cross is beautiful. The command to be holy, this command to be perfect, this command to be set apart, this command that you and I do not have the ability to do on the cross, the command to be holy becomes an invitation to join Jesus in his holiness. What happens in Leviticus, God says, be holy because I am holy. And what happens on the cross is Jesus says, I am holy, therefore you can be. It completely turns everything upside down. Hebrews 9 says it this way, but when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that, that is, not of this creation, he entered once and for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats or calves, but by means of his own blood. Meaning, Jesus did not go into the holy place to ask for forgiveness by the blood of a goat. Jesus went to, for our forgiveness before God in heaven with his own blood. Thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of the defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, to purify our consciousness from dead works to serve a living God. Here's the beauty of Leviticus. Leviticus had the ability to purify the flesh. That when Israel would sin, the, the sacrificial system would purify the flesh. Christ's work on the cross went beyond that. It didn't just purify dead flesh. What Christ did on the cross was make the dead alive. It was no longer a command, you be holy, you be perfect, you be set apart because I chose you. It's now an invitation to you can't be perfect without the blood of Christ. And so Christ goes to the cross so that you and I can take on his righteousness and give him our sin. That we can exchange with him. It's this beautiful, beautiful thing. And here's the truth about every single one of us. Here's the truth about every single one of us. There is one certainty for all of us. And it's this, we all have to atone for our sins. Every single one of us have to atone for our sins. Remember this earlier? All right? Be perfect for I am perfect. We, even if we ignore it or we strive to be perfect, at the end of the day, we're still guilty and all of us have to pay for our guilt. Every single one of us. And in this model, it really, it really 
it, it sucks because it's self-atonement. It's be perfect. If ignored, I'm guilty. If I strive, I'm guilty. At the end of the day, I'm guilty, and I have to pay for my atonement. And you can. You can pay for your sin. It'll cost you your life. Or, in the beauty of the cross, we can surrender. The beauty of the cross. That we can surrender and we can take the atoning work of Christ on, our, on the cross and make it our own. So here's the truth. Atonement is 100% required. And it's also 100% available. It's either you be holy or you surrender to His holiness. See, here's what the law does. The law says it's a command to be holy. But what grace does, it says when you realize that the command to be holy is a command that leaves us overwhelmed in guilt is you can surrender to Jesus on the cross and grace takes the command to be holy and makes it an invitation to be holy. Just be honest. You've tried to ignore it. You've tried to strive and you're just worn out. And here's the beauty of the cross. Jesus is greater than our guilt. He's greater than our guilt. And just like Israel would reach out to that goat and lay their sins on that goat, they'd lay their iniquities on that goat, they would say, I'm guilty, I can't be good enough. They'd lay it on that goat and that goat would be cast away and one goat would be sacrificed. What Christ did on the cross was give us the same invitation to lay our sin on him, that he would pay the debt that we could not pay, that he would remove our sins from us. And then when he came out of the grave, what he gave us was righteousness and life in exchange. And so here's what I want to do. I want to give us the opportunity to respond to that. So I'm just going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Not because this is like a magical position or anything beyond the fact that I just want to give you some time to just, to just be quiet before the Lord. And I just want to invite you. I, many of us came in here today ignoring the call to be holy, ignoring the command to be holy, ignoring or striving to the, the, the command to be holy. We're trying our own. We're trying to ignore it. And we realize at the end of the day, it just leaves us overwhelmed by our guilt. And I want to invite you, just like Leviticus 16 invited the Israelites, just like Hebrews says that Christ went once and for all into the Holy of Holies to, to ask for forgiveness and to, to pay the price or pay the debt for our sin. I want to ask you, if you want to, to stretch out your hands. Today for the first time, to surrender your life to Jesus. I want to invite you to raise your hand just symbolically to say, I'm laying my sins on him, I'm laying my guilt on him, and I'm receiving the work of the cross. But today, you go, today, I want to become a Christian. I want to surrender my life to Jesus in this moment. I just want you to raise your hand. Just like Israel would cast their sins on the Lord and receive life in exchange, I want to invite you to do the same thing, to, to raise your hand, to cast your sins on the Lord, and then receive life in return. And for those of you who are raising your hands right now, I just want you to simply tell God what, what you're telling us with your hand raised. I just want you to pray to him and just say, God, I'm a sinner and I've, I've tried to ignore it. I've tried to strive and be good enough on my own, and I can't. I need a Savior. Jesus, you are my Savior. I surrender my life to you. It's not about works. It's not about religion. It's not about comfort and pleasure. It's about surrender. For those of you raising your hands, you just tell them that. You just tell them that right now in this moment. Amen. Amen. Now here's how we're going to end our service today as a family. Uh, we're going to take communion. And just like Leviticus tells us, Leviticus gives us the instructions for the Passover. And Jesus gathered his disciples. And they, they were gathering for the Passover. And what Jesus began to declare is that the Passover that you were ready for, Jesus is going to take all Levitical law and turn it on its head. And so what Jesus says, he takes the bread and he puts the bread before him he goes guys you remember the bread it's the grain offering we wave it before the lord to thank him for our provision and jesus says let, let me tell you something even better more than god providing for you physically jesus says my body is going to be broken so that you can have provision spiritually eternally and jesus takes the bread and says hey this this is the body this is my body that i'm going to have broken for you that god will provide for you he also took the cup and he said, this cup represents the blood. And Jesus is literally telling his disciples, my blood's going to be spilt so that you would be atoned for, that your sins would be paid for. As Jesus is looking at his disciples saying, my body has been broken for you, my blood's been spilt for you. And then a few days later, he's on the cross. 
So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take communion together. If you're on the outside rows, I want you to grab the basket and pass it in. If you're in the sanctuary, we have some men and women coming around with the elements. I just want you to grab a piece of bread and a cup. I want to invite you, if you're a believer in Christ, we welcome you to join with us. If you're not a believer, man, this is, this is what we do as family, and we just invite you just to join us and, and, and by watching and by, by just observing. I would encourage you as the bread comes by, it's, all, it's, an, it's a time for you to begin to check your heart. Just like the precision of Leviticus, Corinthians tells us as we come before the Lord to take communion, to remember his sacrifice, to remember that he's the, the, the provision for our life, that his blood was spilt for our sin. It tells us to check our heart, to make sure that we are, are in, a, in a place where we remember that holy, we remember that perfectly. And so as it comes across, I just want you to take a moment for that. And what we're going to do is we're going to take communion together. So if you would grab the bread, I just want to remind you, church, this is the body of Christ that was broken for you, that provided the provision for you to be taken care of, not only physically, but much more importantly, spiritually, eternally, that Christ's body was broken on our behalf. And then Christ took the cup and he passed the cup around and what he was declaring to those men who were following him is that the sacrificial system was about to be fulfilled and that the blood of Christ eternally, eternally atones for the sin of man. And he passed it around and he said, this is, this, is, this is my blood which was spilt for you that your sins would be forgiven. So as we take the cup, may we remember that his blood is what provides forgiveness for our sins. The Bible says that the disciples stood up and they sang a song, I think honestly because they were just so overwhelmed by the presence of Jesus, they were so overwhelmed by the message of Jesus that he was going to forgive their sins and they stood and they sung, they literally responded to the gospel. And so what we're going to do here is we're going to respond to the gospel, we're going to sing, we're going to declare the goodness of our God, the, the altars are always open, sometimes we respond by coming and praying, we respond here at the Church of Eleven Twenty Two by the giving of our tithes and offerings. And there's giving boxes all over the room that, that as we've heard the gospel and as we've experienced the gospel and as we've been reminded of the atoning work of Christ, it, it calls us to, to repent. It causes us to worship. It causes us to give. It causes us to respond. So I want to invite you to stand. I'm going to pray for us. And then we're just going to have a, a time of response to the gospel work that Christ atoned for us. Jesus, we love you. And Jesus, we thank you so much that you first loved us. That your work on the cross not only forgave our flesh of sin, but it made the dead alive. And God, I praise you that we, that we live in, in your presence because of the blood of Jesus. Eternally paying for our sins. And so, God, we respond by worship, we respond by singing, we respond by giving, we respond by praying, we respond by just being quiet in, your, in the presence of you. And God, as we respond to you, may you just um, dwell amongst us and meet with us. God, it's in your perfect and your holy name we pray. Amen.